for two weeks after Heather Heyer was killed during a protest in Charlottesville, national coverage was dominated by the question of what to do about violent white supremacists. Then, two weeks later, during a protest in Berkeley... What are you guys beating yourself for? Video went viral of black masked Antifa chasing and hitting extreme right protesters about two blocks from our studio in Berkeley. Suddenly, the entire conversation changed from what to do about Nazis to what to do about the people fighting with them. The mayor of Berkeley said he'd like to use California's gang laws against Antifa. Someone in national security leaked the press documents saying that the FBI and Department of Homeland Security are monitoring Antifa for, quote, terrorist activity. Now, I was at the Berkeley protest. I did not find it particularly violent. There were fewer injuries than at past clashes. There were fewer arrests than at an average Raiders game. You could have spent the whole day at the anti-hate rally and not seen any fighting at all. So I got really interested in how national coverage turned so fast. And we're going to explore that question in three parts, focused on technology. We're going to look at how one reporter's video got doctored by right-wing trolls, then retweeted by celebrities. We're going to look at a network of Twitter accounts run by bots to amplify that kind of disinformation. But first, we're going to go inside the chat rooms where right-wing organizers planned the protest in Charlottesville. They mostly used a platform called Discord. The group was very, very conscious of their own public image and their public perception. That's Aaron Sankin. He's a reporter with Reveal who analyzed the chat logs from Discord that were secured by another media nonprofit, Unicorn Riot. The whole thing was kind of pitched at what they saw as the white conservative mainstream who they felt might be sympathetic to their cause if they were really able to take their movement and put a friendly face on it. That movement? White nationalism. They said that people in full KKK garb were not supposed to come. Like the Klan members could come. And there were Klan members who did show up. And one of them was eventually arrested for firing a gun at an African-American protester while also yelling a racial epithet. But they did not want those really overt symbols of white supremacy. They didn't want Nazi armbands. They didn't want uh, Roman salutes, even though um, a lot of those things ultimately showed up. So to be clear, they're cool with Nazis and Klansmen coming. They just don't want the hoods and the swastikas. Yeah. And there was actually, in addition to the chats, they, Unicorn Riot also provided audio recordings of conference call planning meetings. And in one of those meetings, you can hear an organizer say the attendees need to be really careful about what they say to the media on the ground. And there's a quote of this organizer saying, you know, I don't want you guys going up to MSNBC and saying that we should kill every non-white person on the planet. Like he didn't he said that he didn't really care if that's what they believed or if they said that on some uh, other media platform that was really aimed at the alt-right. But just don't say that stuff to MSNBC because they don't want who they see as the persuadable conservative white mainstream as, you know, wanting to push away from them. They wanted to be able to, and this is something to talk about explicitly, put on the red MAGA hats. And then when there are videos and pictures of Antifa attacking them, you'll have average, you know, non-white supremacist, non-racist Trump supporters looking at this and saying, hey, these people are just like us. They're just attacking people who like Trump. I don't understand why. I don't understand why they're doing it. And through that, 
I think they believed that they would look more reasonable in comparison. So they were planning to get attacked by Antifa? Yeah, yes. They talked about in these chats of really, really saying, don't throw the first punch. Basically, what they wanted to do was create a situation where they'd get a lot of counter-protesters and the counter-protesters would come out and they expected that if they could rile up the counter-protesters enough, the counter-protesters would start fights. They were willing to rejoin those fights, but it was important for them to create this sense of provocation because if there's images of them getting attacked, they look more reasonable by comparison. Quick side note. So far, this is eerily similar to how the group that came to Berkeley on August 27th acted. Here is one guy. He uses the name Johnny Benitez. I don't hate immigrants because of the, they're brown or they're from somewhere else. I oppose illegal immigration and cheap labor schemes. Because I'm Sounding pretty calm, talking immigration. Seen it, that they can't get raises. Some of them get but the Johnny Benitez that you find online is really different. He has posted videos ranting about Jewish problems. He's promoted a conspiracy theory that Jews were responsible for the communist revolution in Russia. He's attacked a Holocaust remembrance event as anti-white. I would play you tape from all those videos, but he's taking them down. Then there's Joe Vival, who also showed up in Berkeley. The, the ring on your... What is it? The day before the Berkeley protest, he was at a press conference wearing a Nazi symbol. Uh, it looks like an iron cross. Is that an iron cross ring? It's not iron. <laughs> That's from a Twitter video that was posted by KQED reporter John Sepulveda. When I saw Vol in Berkeley the next day, that ring was gone. So for the organizers of the Charlottesville protest, the model of what a successful action looked like was their torch-lit march across the University of Virginia campus the night before the main Unite the Right rally. Yeah, so there was there were comments that said that they were really happy about that. They were able to go out and spread their message in the only violence and altercation um, that they saw, at least on the uh, on the on the message boards that happened. Uh, the conversation of those message boards about the event said they got uh, they got the counter protesters there to throw the first punch, and they looked reasonable, and they looked powerful, and they looked ascendant, and so they were they were really happy about it. I think the con- their conversations internally about what happened the next day um, were were a lot different. Well, let, let's get into that in a minute. But I, I want to stay on this night because this was a bizarre scene. They weren't wearing Nazi armbands, but they were chanting Nazi slogans, specifically blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. They marched to a statue of Thomas Jefferson on the university campus that was ringed by counter-protesters and surrounded the counter-protesters holding torches. They think they came off looking good because they didn't throw the first punch? Yeah, they thought they came off looking good. And I think there's something really interesting in the this, this statue of Jefferson and the fact that the reason that they were in Charlottesville at all was to protest the removal of, of either Confederate statues or statues of, of people who were controversial in history or slave owners and, and stuff like that. One of the conversations they had was that during the Friday night rally, they wanted to sing Dixie, like the Confederate anthem Dixie. But they realized that most people who were attending the rally did not know the words. So they had all of these conversations saying, you guys, we got to you got to make sure you know all the words so we can be really, really on top of it when we all sing this together. 
and and it struck me as something really interesting because the whole reason for this in the first place, ostensibly, is for them to say, we just want to preserve this Southern history. Now, one might think that if someone is willing to drive across the entire country and risk their lives, essentially, based on their battle preparations for this cause, that you you would think they would already know Dixie. You would think they would already <laughs> know all the stuff about the Confederacy. Right. But it shows that for them, this stuff wasn't about the South, really. It wasn't about that level of history. It was about supporting the symbol of, of white supremacy, which is these Confederate statues. Okay, so I know your record basically stops right after Charlottesville. And our principal line of inquiry here is what happened in Berkeley two weeks later. But what you're describing sounds really, really similar the very small number of alt-right figures who showed up here kind of presented themselves as calm. They focused on relatively mainstream political topics when they were doing interviews. They talked about things like immigration, even though many of them have online videos going into much crazier stuff like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Nobody was wearing obvious Nazi insignia, although I dug into some of the people who were there and they'd been wearing things like iron crosses and other photographs of them online. Joey Gibson, the head of Patriot Prayer, he walked straight into a crowd of black-masked Antifa like he wanted to get attacked in Berkeley. Do you have any sense of how much overlap there was between the planning for Charlottesville and, and the planning for these subsequent protests? Are they the same people? I don't think so. I did not see any names that were similar across Berkeley and uh, Charlottesville. I didn't see kind of the similar push of white supremacist ideology as much in Berkeley. I think you kind of really nail it there is that the connection really is, is in the tactics. The connection really is in this sense of provocation of trying to just rile up the other side to get them to resort to violence so they they look unreasonable all right aaron sankin thank you very much for taking the time to explain your work to us no problem thanks for having me aaron sankin is a reporter with reveal his beats include privacy and cybersecurity. they have a couple dozen extreme right protesters in berkeley their strategy don't look like nazis do get antifa to throw the first punch try to get the media to turn against the counter protesters Here's a really telling example of how that worked out in the brave new world of social media. Shane Bauer, a Mother Jones reporter, spent the majority of the day posting videos and photos from the demonstrations to his Twitter account, including this one. It's a guy down on the ground getting hit and kicked for about five seconds until another reporter, Al Letson from Reveal, throws his body over him. A right-wing tweeter hijacked that video. He recaptioned it, quote, man walking to grocery store in Berkeley mistaken for being a Nazi is beaten into a coma. Under that caption, the video caught fire. But that caption was all lies. The guy getting hit wasn't beaten into a coma. He walked away. He wasn't on his way to a grocery store. He was filming anti-hate protesters to dox them or post their personal information online. Previously, he had posted tweets threatening violence against Antifa if they showed up in Berkeley. Nonetheless, the falsely captioned video 
trickled up to the mainstream media and was retweeted by MSNBC host Joe Scarborough, who has 1.7 million followers. He did eventually take it down. So the question is, when videos of violence and attacks on Antifa start going viral, were they getting any help going viral? You know, the way that trending topics works on Twitter, you can certainly amplify things in a way that is not actually organic. Laura Rosenberger is a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where she directs the Alliance for Securing Democracy. They are tracking what she believes is a Russia-linked influence network on Twitter. You know, I've seen charts and graphs where you can tell a very real difference between something that's organically trending and something that's being amplified by bot accounts because it shows a very different kind of pattern. Bot accounts. Those are social media accounts run by an algorithm, not a person. Maybe the instruction set says something like, retweet everything that has the words Antifa and terrorist. We have a a research team that is working with us. They've monitored um, these accounts for several years, and in particular for the last several months, really trying to hone in on the relevance of this particular set of accounts to Russian disinformation programs targeting the United States. What is the evidence that there are links to the Russian government? Well, I think it's important to clarify that these are not necessarily all accounts that are linked to the Russian government, right? So some of them are accounts that have been participating in specific disinformation campaigns that are synchronized with RT and Sputnik News, which are known to be Russian propaganda outlets, right? So some of these are accounts that have moved in sort of synchronicity with those news outlets, which makes pretty clear that they are very deliberately amplifying Russian, known Russian propaganda. And another set of accounts are those who are meaningfully self-identify themselves as promoting pro-Russian viewpoints. And then the third is these are bots that are providing support to the members of those first two categories. Got it. So what you have evidence of is the coordination and messaging. That's correct. And I think one thing, again, to just take a step back and probably a step beyond um, just the social media aspect of this, I think one thing that's important to bear in mind is that a lot of Russia's strategy when it comes to these active measures, um, which is what we believe the information operations are a part of, is a lot of it's not um, Russian government, directly Russian government controlled and directed. They do a lot of work through proxy networks. And Putin himself has even cited what he has called patriotic hackers in the in the hacking context. This is basically this idea where these are people who sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, do things sometimes for the Russian government, sometimes just because they think it might be helpful to Russia, sometimes because it might be beneficial to them themselves. But it is these network of proxies that, you know, allows them to sort of have this pervasive effort to um, influence our media environment and, you know, across the board in other spaces as well. So how did these influence networks that you're describing as linked to, or at least coordinated with, Russian propaganda outlets, how did they respond to the protests in Charlottesville and afterwards? So it's really interesting. Um, One of the things that we see most from the Russian information operations is actually not that they're promoting stories and content related to how great Russia is and why all Americans love Russia or should love Russia or even directly related to American politics or any particular candidate, a lot of what they do is target and try to exploit societal cleavages. So whether that's issues of race, whether that's issues of religion, sometimes it's issues in the European context of immigration, 
you know, they try to fuel and exploit these divisions in society because it's important to bear in mind a lot of their goal is actually sowing chaos and weakening our institutions. And, and so fanning the flames of extremism is one of the best ways for them to do that. So Charlottesville, and then what we have seen since, has provided, of course, you know, a prime opportunity for Russia to be able to fan those flames. Interestingly, in the days right after Charlottesville, the networks were kind of quiet on these issues. Um, we saw a little bit of activity popping up around particular stories here and there, but nothing of a really cohesive fashion. Several days after Charlottesville, though, we started to see a real concerted effort targeting Antifa, and it started with an RT story that was promoting a White House petition to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. And where that petition originally came from and and who started promoting that that particular effort is a different question. But RT came with this overt story promoting this petition. And we very quickly saw this network, these 600 covert accounts that we monitor, that are the amplification network, very quickly all start to amplify that story. And then for several days after, even once RT kind of dropped off with that particular story, the networks continued to just pound that theme of Antifa as a terrorist organization. And that was when we really started to see that the, the very clear, you know, deliberate effort by these Russian networks to promote that particular message. And so what you're saying is that this is not necessarily because Russia thinks it's to its advantage to bash Antifa. It's because they want to get people fighting with each other. It doesn't really matter what they're fighting over. Yeah, for Russia, this isn't really necessarily about ideology. Um, in fact, in, in one of sort of the great ironies, um, you know, Russia and, and Putin, you know, consider themselves to be anti-fascist, and certainly internally they're very anti-fascist. But when it comes to external groups, they tend to take a different tack, and that tends to be just wherever they can fan those extremist flames and, and really exploit those divisions. So th- there's a question I should raise because I know one of our listeners will write in about it. You were part of the Hillary Clinton campaign. And there's a quarter of the left that's very critical of all the Russia bashing and suggests one of the motivations is to shift blame from the failures of that campaign to an outside source. So let me take one step back and address for you sort of the broader effort that we have here, and then I can come back to that very specific point. And so the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which I'm heading up, is a bipartisan effort, and I have a co-lead on that who was Marco Rubio's foreign policy advisor. We believe this is about our democracy. This is about preserving our democratic institutions. And so for me, this is about our democracy. And in fact, it's really not about Russia. If any other actor were trying to interfere in Americans' ability to not only choose their own leaders, but have a discourse that is truly based on our free speech and is not actually based on another outside actor trying to come in and influence what we think and how we talk about it. All right. Laura Rosenberger, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Brian. Laura Rosenberger is director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. She's also a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. The dashboard that they have set up to track the activity of the 600 accounts they've identified as part of a Russia-linked influence network is called Hamilton 68. You can Google it. You can use it to do your own research. 
What you just heard is the first installment in the first podcast series that we are spinning off of the newly expanded Upfront. It's called Upfront Tech. It's the place where we're going to follow our stories into chat rooms and into the Twitterverse and into the spheres where our very human, very social, very political interactions are heavily impacted by the technologies mediating them. And if you want to hear the second installment in the series, you can do it right now. You can do it before that segment even goes out on these airwaves. All you have to do is go to kpfa.org upfront and hit the button that says subscribe. Now, if you like the podcast and you're already subscribed, there is one more thing you can do to help us out. Rate and review Upfront Tech in whatever podcast app you're using. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards-Teeger, with help from Lucy Kang. We're shooting to put up a new episode every Friday. Most of that time, that means you'll hear them here before they ever go on air. It also means you'll hear longer, more in-depth versions here, because no clock! That is the beauty of podcasting. If you like this, you might like the daily show we work on at KPFA. It's called <clears throat> Upfront. It airs weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific at kpfa.org. And we always love to hear what you think. Send an email to upfront at kpfa.org.